Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, strength coach, Highland Games athlete, and this weight gain thing's getting pretty serious because I broke a toilet seat yesterday. Ooh. So yeah, it snapped. It snapped while I was nice. Yeah. Was it a heavy duty one or just one that had been uh, uh, wear and tear? No, it was fairly new. It was only like a month old because we just put one new one at the gym and it snapped. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, I haven't broken any toilet seats lately, so that's good. Uh, faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, created a flex diet cert, and I'm actually at home now, which is kind of crazy. Yes, it is. <laughs> and Nick Clayton, I am a, a fitness mutt, the personal training background, strength coach background. Been the last eight years or so, uh, help educating personal trainers uh, with the NSCA, National Strength Conditioning Association. And uh, now working with Dr. John Rusin to help trainers learn how to train without pain. So I'm happy to be here, gents. Thanks for having me. Totally. All right, everyone. Um, We had Nick on today because after the break, the topic is going to be uh, virtual events, virtual versus in-person events. We've touched on this, I think, once before many, many months ago. uh, But we wanted to get Nick's opinion on some of these things, um, cost effectiveness, you know, pros and cons, all that sort of stuff. So hang around after the break, uh, and you can find out about virtual events specifically for, for lifters, right? Um, before that though, we're going to cover, I have one little piece of news here, uh, and then we're going to do Nick's origin story as we are wont to do and just, you know, why he does what he does and how it all began. Uh, but I wanted to share this cause I think Mike might be able to, uh, add to this, but this is from Advances in Nutrition. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is a piece by Zoo and Colleagues, XU. Uh, this was a, just a couple of weeks old, so it's a new study, but it's called Elucidating the Regulatory Role of Melatonin in Brown, White, and Beige Adipocytes. So, if you take melatonin to get to sleep, I mean, there are some other benefits to melatonin, and I thought it'd be fun to bring this up. Um, it basically just says that, you know, there's a huge prevalence of overweight and obesity and all the comorbidities that come with that, right? Diabetes and hypertension and all this sort of thing. It says in mammals uh, related to this whole situation, in mammals, three types of adipocytes have different characteristics, right? Different origins. There's white fat cells, white adipocytes, and those are the ones we normally blame as, you know, they're, they're fat storage they're inflammatory in nature. I mean, we have to be careful. White fat is not just a gas tank for calories like a lot of people think. I mean, it's really quite active, adipokines and, and all that sort of thing, uh, pro-inflammatory. So white fat is usually what we, we don't want tons of that. There's brown fat and there's beige. Uh, it says beige and brown adipocytes contain 
numerous mitochondria, right? So they're going to be much more metabolically active and, and help counteract obesity in some of these diseases. So this paper is about melatonin and its relationship to beige or white fat cells. So it goes on to say melatonin is a neurohormone. It plays multiple roles in regulating inflammation, blood pressure, insulin action, and uh, energy metabolism. So uh, essentially, this is a big summary article, and I am not out today, especially given all of our technology issues and everything, to try to lay down some lengthy uh, review of what melatonin uh, does. But uh, it says in, in this case, um, melatonin does play a role with these different kinds of fat cells. It says especially affecting adipogenesis, so the creation of uh, white fat or other types, inducing beige formation. Uh, in other words, white adipose tissue browning, it's called. So moving those regular, what we might say regular white fat cells, toward more brown, right, uh, uh, creating these beige or browned uh, white uh, fat cells, uh, and enhancing straight-up brown adipose tissue mass. So for the longest time, it was really debated in adults how important brown adipose tissue was, right? Um I always learned there's only a little dab in certain anatomical locations around your body between your shoulder blades and this and that. And it, there's just not enough brown adipose tissue mass like there might be in infants where it's a, a bigger part of metabolic output and whatnot. But um, it does say melatonin can brown white adipose tissue, which is really very interesting, moving you toward a faster metabolism, healthier metabolism, but also um, improving anti-inflammatory effects antioxidative effects, uh, regulating adipokine secretion. So again, chemicals that are coming from your fat tissue. It's actually an endocrine tissue. Uh, and then it just concludes by saying, based on the current findings, melatonin is a potential therapeutic agent to control energy metabolism, adipogenesis, fat deposition, adiposity, and related uh, metabolic diseases. So it was, it, it was interesting to me. I know over the years I've seen attempts to use melatonin for different things. Uh, re resetting your circadian clock, right? Mike and I have seen a lot of conference, you know, uh, pre presentations about that. I've even seen the, uh, attempts to use it before exercise, which I was yeah. very, very weird. You know, I mean, you got to think your perceived exertion would be high the whole time. Um, you know, it, it may augment or actually decrease growth hormone secretion, like area under the curve if you take it an hour before you lift, stuff like that. So there's been attempts to use it for different things. But I thought this was pretty cool, especially because as people age, of course, you lose melatonin and your quality of sleep really goes down. I mean, at ISSN this past June, um, Mike, what was what was the presenter's name? I hate to put you on the spot. Um, but for which great, one? The sleep talk. And she was saying how you just don't get the deep quality sleep. Oh, uh, was it Dr. Like Tartar, I believe? Okay. Okay. Yeah. But you just don't get it, you know, when you're that age, as opposed to like when you're 20 and you can just get these ridiculously deep kinds of sleep and satisfying, rejuvenating sleep. But this article is suggesting that, well, maybe you can supplement melatonin almost as an, you know, a longevity type agent sort of thing. So I just thought I'd bring this up. It's not just about resetting your clock and getting to sleep at the right time, but if it can actually brown, right, white fat cells and make them more metabolically active with more mitochondria and that sort of thing, 
it does almost look like a youth type hormone. And there was some stuff I know uh, published in the early 2000s, like 04, 06. They were very interested in this whole sort of um, longevity aspect of melatonin. But I don't know, Mike, did, have you heard much about it lately? I know we've talked about it a little bit. Um, a little bit. I haven't seen too much on that. I just pulled up a couple pretty nice reviews uh, on that. There was even a case report, um, proof of concept study from uh, just recently on melatonin increases brown adipose tissue volume and activity in patients with melatonin deficiency. So that was kind of interesting. So looks like there's kind of multiple studies that are supporting that. And one thing that I just found out recently that I've it's one of those things you hear about, but you're like, nah, that can't be true. It seems too good. Uh, Dr. Dan Party did a presentation at AHS this year about the effects of uh, sunlight directly on adipose tissue uh, itself uh, via a receptor called melanopsin. And funny enough, this is from a Canadian researcher, Dr. Peter Light, which is a pretty interesting last name to be studying the effects of light on fat tissues. And a study that was actually done in scientific uh, reports about a year and a half ago, uh, one of the quotes here is that results suggest that uh, white adipose tissue may be directly under the influence of ambient sunlight exposure and may have important implications for current understanding of adipocyte biology. And one of the other parts, their conclusion here too, was that they uh, radiated these different adipocytes to blue light and it actually resulted in a decrease in the droplet size and an increase in basal lipolic, lip, lipolytic rate and changes in adiponectin and leptin secretion. Now, this oh. is, you know, not a complete human randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. It's definitely more on the mechanistic side. Um, but some more data that, you know, maybe sunlight itself is having, you know, multiple different effects from regulating uh, melatonin production, which is related to what you were talking about there, Lonnie, to maybe even direct, dare I say, uh, fat-burning effects uh, on the droplets themselves, possibly. Weird. You know, this makes me think of the old, um, like in Pumping Iron, you know, Arnold, mm -hmm. and they're laying out, and yes. how bodybuilders, they spend time in tanning boots and whatnot. I mean, I've, I've done my share of that to get ready for a contest, and to think that maybe it's actually helping you get lean it's not just developing color yeah right? yeah it's pretty fascinating and um yeah because that's one thing i've wondered about for quite a while is does you know clothing affect your body's even circadian rhythm right are there different maybe mechanisms via melanopsin that we can differentiate light versus dark not just from the photoreceptor ganglion in the the back of the eyeballs but through the skin itself being exposed to sunlight. So this is maybe a mechanism of where it's having beneficial effects. That's really out there. What, yeah. would, you suggest, <laughs> what would you suggest as far as, I know we covered this a few months ago, but um, if we have listeners that are interested, I mean, let's face it, as people become middle-aged, and all th three of the co-hosts here are kind of <laughs> in that category, yep. um, people... You know, you put on body fat, your carbohydrate metabolism suffers somewhat. Um, what would you suggest? I mean, I, I could only share my thoughts because I haven't really looked at this or recommended this to clients, but I I can't take a lot of melatonin. I literally just take one and a half milligrams, and I don't do it continuously, right, because I'm a little concerned about doing it all the time. Yeah. So when I feel like I need it or I want to reset, 
I'll do it for, uh, I don't know, maybe up to two weeks at a time. Uh, but it's interesting, right? If it's going to help you be lean and that sort of thing. How do you do it with your clients? Uh, my biggest thing is I try to look at their lifestyle first. And the biggest tip, like I have a client who just started a couple months ago and very dysregulated uh, sleep patterns would go to bed super late, would get up early. And I have them go outside for about 20 minutes, just you know, go for a walk, walk the dog. Don't wear any sunglasses, uh, ideally no glasses if at all possible. And one other thing I noticed on that lately too is that some of the new contacts actually will block some UV light. So I oh. tell clients not hmm. to put their contacts in because you can check to see what type of light it's actually blocking. And you don't need to stare at the sun as you're walking around, but just that ambient exposure from overhead, even on an overcast day, after a couple of weeks, that'll do a really good job of resetting your circadian rhythm. So it kind of gives you that uh, anchor in the morning, and that'll actually make you feel a little bit more tired at night so that you'll kind of go to bed earlier. Hopefully have a little bit more uh, better melatonin release because that's the main hormone that's in that uh, pathway. Um, if they're traveling a lot or like I was just in Finland, I took a pretty heavy dose on my way back the first night. So I tried nine milligrams, which is more than what Ooh. I ever normally use uh, because I was trying to change my circadian rhythm by nine hours. Oh, and right. Then, yeah. yeah. And then the next night I just did three milligrams and the next night I did nothing. And, and again, anecdotally, that, that seemed to help. Um, but there is a downside if you take too much melatonin, especially if it's not a time release, you can actually wake up in the middle of the night. So if I have clients who are like, yeah, I took three milligrams of melatonin and I wake up at two in the morning all the time, then actually titrating the dose down, not up, seems to help. Because if you get yep. too high of a dose, your body sees this massive super physiologic spike and then it starts to see it starting to decline. And it goes, oh, melatonin's decline. Time to get up. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've done. I mean, daily use, I mean, probably 0.5 milligrams is kind of what I would go to if I had the choice to use it on a, a daily thing. But I find sunlight in the morning and just even light exposure seems to be the, the biggest help. Yeah. I, you know, I do some. I do the opposite of like the screen reddener that I have that, you know, I don't want a blue light blasting oh, in my sure. eyes before bed, but I do the opposite. When I wake up in the morning, I roll over and um, I'm slurping coffee and I, I actually have my tablet fairly close to my face with the redner turned off, right? Cause yeah. I want the blue light in my face yes. to try to, you know, get me up in the morning. So uh, I, it's funny what you said about the contacts and the blocking and like, um, it's the same thing with sunscreen. Like, yes. what an ophthalmologist or what a dermatologist would say is sometimes at odds with a nutritionist, for example, from a vitamin D perspective or what you're talking about, like, you know, peripheral receptors. It's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. You know, you think you're doing a good thing with the 33 million sunblock and the, and the, everything's blocking every UV ray from your eyes. And I understand why they're doing that, but there could be a, you know, bite you in the ass component here. You know, yeah, you know. yeah. I'm gonna a lot if I'm gonna be out in the sun for a long period of time. I usually just wear like a UV rash guard, so I don't have to use as much, you know, sunblock if I'm gonna be out there for quite a while. Because otherwise, I'll turn red like Randy the Red Lobster. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, no doubt. There's there's definitely a need for protection of some yep. kind for sure. Yeah, Phil, uh, let's have. Do do your people ever have sleep problems? Are are many of them middle aged and could be lower on the melatonin that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, I think most of the people I deal with that have sleep problems is stress-related from, like, owning businesses and things like that. That's my biggest thing. It's like when your brain can't shut down yeah. type of thing. It's usually the sleep that issues that we deal with, which I'm not sure how much melatonin helps that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's just, like you said, getting your head to, to turn off is the ones I've dealt with mostly. So Right. Yeah, breathing exercises and stuff. I mean, I, yeah. I'll tell you, even when I'm stressed and my mind's racing, uh, if I take my, I bite a three milligram melatonin and a half, and uh, it's like clockwork. It just hits me hard, you know. Yeah. And I'm, forty minutes later, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Well, uh, Nick has been very patient with us while we ramble about melatonin. Nick, let's get yeah. to you, uh, my man. Um, Let's talk about your origin story. So you said you were all over the place with fitness interests and background and stuff. But um, what led you to, you know, jobs like working with the National Strength Conditioning Association or or what you do now? How did it start? Well, that's a great question. Um, it's been an interesting road. So I would almost say it, it kind of started out in, uh, in New Jersey and I wasn't happy there. So I did my undergrad there in uh, health promotion, exercise science, went to grad school, and, uh, you know, I just I couldn't take the winters, of all things, just the constant gray and cold. Um, so I applied for grad schools and uh, wanted to go to either San Diego State or the University of Florida. Both had good programs, got into both, uh, told my parents, my mom looked at me and was like, well, San Diego is so far away. So fast forward, I went to Florida, and... Uh, it was great. Uh, started personal training there and um, while well, I was in grad school. What I found really interesting was the gym that I worked at, Gainesville Health, uh, it's a pretty amazing story and Joe Cerulli's story in general. If you're looking for just a cool cool read, check that out. But uh, I started working at Gainesville Health and the, the training program is fantastic. I mean, there's probably 50 or 60 trainers now, but I think we had 35 at the time. You know, you go through a pretty extensive interview process. You get assigned a mentor and a team. There's monthly con ed. You're constantly learning. So that's what I thought of personal training. The fast forward, I finished my master's um, in exercise science. Uh, was personal training. Had an opportunity to run the rec centers at the University of Florida. Uh, so the more of the fitness side programming. <clears throat> so I took that. Um, Jumped in there, and I was like, man, I'm a really good personal trainer, but uh, I don't know anything about managing 200 part-time students and a handful of full-time students. And so I ended up getting my MBA while I was there as well. Um, so this is where the mutt part comes in. So I went from personal training to managing student rec centers, which is more about uh, management, but also student development and engagement. While I'm there, I met the team doc, for Florida, Dr. Keith Meister, who's now a team doc for the Texas Rangers. Uh, so he had moved out to Texas, obviously. He called me up and said, hey, I've got my private practice, sports physical therapy practice. You're good at business and you got the conditioning background. You want to come out. <laughs> so I moved out to Texas to uh, run the sports performance program um, for the team doc of Texas Rangers. Did that for three years, and that was essentially working hand in hand with sports performance, um, sports PT. So, good experiences all around. But at that point, I was getting tired of the 14-hour days and just the long hours. Job came up the NCA, and uh, I jumped on. It. So, uh, 
while I was there, it was mostly focused on pretty much improving the industry. So everything from helping with content development and strategy to working on our, our conferences and clinics. Um, so that's, that's kind of the gist of it. I actually just left the NSCA and work with Dr. John Rusin and his uh, pain-free performance certification course. So uh, I've got a, just a passion in kind of seeing the industry improve, seeing people train smarter, healthier, and, and kind of enjoying fitness as opposed to, you know, going gung-ho and, and kind of hating it and being burnt out. Yeah. Like, you know, I, about story. I, I don't want to go off on a tangent about this. We could do a whole show on it probably, but what did the, the MBA bring uh, to the table that you felt like you were really lacking before? I mean, a lot of, of course, people get into fitness, and we've had whole shows on, you know, they open a gym. They don't even think about simple balance sheets and ins and outs. And, you know, the, the gym crashes in a matter of weeks, you know. Um, what do you think the business side for you uh, brought to the table? And I'm curious because my brother did almost exactly what you did. I mean, he got his bachelor's degree in exercise science, went on and, you know, studied business. Um, and he makes way more money in healthcare management than I, I could imagine him doing in fitness, to be honest. But yeah. what, what did the MBA bring, bring to you? Not just in title, but, you know, in like a skill set. It, it was a game changer. Um, and honestly, I tell people all the time, you, you know, students coming up, they, they talk about getting their master's in exercise science and Look, if you have a degree in exercise science, you don't need a master's unless you're looking to do something specific with it, like research or, um, you know, like if you're looking to train and practice, a master's isn't going to help. So I tell people all the time, look, get either a dual minor, you know, get that, or sorry, dual bachelor's or break it up. So if you do an exercise science uh, undergrad, masters in something related like business so obviously you learn a lot about the ins and outs of running a business but the single biggest thing that i learned from the mba was how to think how to analyze um information and just thinking bigger in terms of scope so everything you do like okay how is this going to affect my roi my return investment um is this moving me towards my mission statement are there more efficient ways to, to run my business and it all, it all ties in with what we do as trainers. You know, it's setting up, you know, an initial assessment. Where's your business at? You know, what are you doing? Um, you know, what are your needs? And then how are you going to get there? Um, so they almost go hand in hand. But I would say without a doubt, it's, it changed my approach to how I look at everyday life. Um, and it's made me just more efficient and more focused on the things that are going to make me better. It does seem like a good mix for sure. Uh, one last thing before we go to break. Um, what about personally? I mean, you must love exercise and the weights, or what did you gravitate, gravitate toward as far as uh, personal exercise interests? So it's interesting. I'm uh, I'm a smaller guy. I'm five six, uh, built like a, a bit like a tugboat. Um, so I mean, I think genetically I should be a bodybuilder. But uh, I've always gravitated towards those middle distance type events. Uh, I grew up playing soccer, uh, loved that, dabbled with it in, in college, uh, had a pretty bad back injury, uh, spondylolysis, and uh, kind of changed the way I looked at things and, you know, the whole pain-free side of things. It was, uh, I went to my initial doc and he's like, okay, well, you can swim, you can't lift ever again, you know, you kind of screw up. Here I am at 22, really fit and I, I 
doctors telling me I'm basically done with exercise because that's how I hurt myself. I'm like, wow, that can't be tears. So I was lucky enough to, to know the right people and got in with a good sports med team. Like, look, you're going to be fine. Like, work on mobility. Make sure you're doing the right kind of things. You know, keep your core strong. You're going to have arthritis, uh, but you'll be fine. And uh, that kind of changed my mindset and training. So, you know, I, I love I love lifting. I lift heavier. I do a lot more power training. Um, and I've always kind of, for the past 15 years, gravitated towards, uh, I don't want to say endurance events, but off-road triathlons and middle distance. Now I've switched over to, uh, to mountain biking. So uh, just kind of staying fit and, uh, and uh, engaged in competition. I think that kind of kind of drives me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Just out of nature of time, let's go to break. And when we come back, we're going to pick Nick's brain a little bit about uh, virtual versus in person. You know, strength events, conferences, um, gatherings, all that sort of thing. So we'll be back in just a minute. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everybody, we're back. 
uh, we've got Nick Clayton. Uh, and we're asking him because of his experience, not just in business management, but personal experience putting together virtual events, um, some questions about their value in, in a sense. So let's start off with uh, your perspective, Nick. Where are you coming from? Are, why are you interested in virtual events? Uh, why did you set one up with the NSCA? You can give any details you want about that or you know, just your, your pros and cons, op opinions, all that sort of thing. Sure thing. So with my background at the NSCA, you know, we've done, uh, I don't know how many conferences and clinics and smaller events I've been involved with. Um, I think they're fantastic. That is the best way. A live event is the best way to really get your money's worth in terms of not only the content that you're, you're seeing and learning from, but the interactions. So it's the... You know, it's the ability to pull an instructor aside or presenter aside and say, hey, that was really cool information. How about this? How about X, Y, Z? Because it's those, it's those light bulb moments that really make a difference for someone, right? Like in a pre presentation, there's a lot of good information. But the majority of that, like, you can find that stuff out on your own. Right? You know, you can do some internet searching, but it's, it's the expert's opinion. It's how they apply it, you know, how they would recommend you apply it in your situation. So... Anywho, we have uh, at NSCA so many of these events with tons of people, and those those interactions that happen around the event are what's gold. Problem is, you know, if you have a thousand people at an event, you know, and there's twenty presenters, or you're trying to talk to one presenter, it, it's so rare that you know most people are going to get what they need out of it. So the idea of the virtual event is is really to open up those discussions, those behind-the-scenes discussions, to the majority, to the audience. So it's with the virtual side, you, know, you can watch the presentation, and we're doing a live Q&A afterwards where you're going to get basically that interaction to either listen in or you can jump in with questions, um, but it's that, it's that connection. So it's, it seems kind of ironic that we're going virtual to connect people more, but uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from on the virtual side and, and why we're trying it with the NSCA. Right. Um, as far as pros and cons, I, I would imagine some of our listeners would be thinking, well, I can't get two hands on with like a workshop and, a, and skill building and that kind of thing. So I got to think the virtual side of it is it's more knowledge acquisition as opposed to skill. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, there's, there's definitely pros and cons. So we took out, um, in this virtual conference, you know, there are practical sessions, but they're more educational-based. So we have one on, you know, how to safely train the shoulder joint, you know, how to, how to breathe well. But it's more of the presenter going through the steps of, hey, here are the key parts, and here's how you do it. Um, so it is that mix of things. The other thing that's, that's a real great option for this or pro is, you know, we've got a cadaver lab going on. It's a five-hour cadaver lab where it's, cadavers, and then it's spliced in with practical application. So you might see a dissection of the quad, and then in the next frame, we're going through uh, self-myofascial release, mobility, and some key training points and related to the quad. So you can get more in-depth on the content, but you definitely don't get the hands-on side of it. Okay, yeah. Mike, uh, what about what about you? As far as virtual stuff, have you done much virtual stuff, uh, either as a you know provider or a consumer, or are you mostly in person? How do you go about this? Yeah, I've actually done both. I mean, obviously, I have a 
certification that's virtual and I've, you know, done in-person stuff both here and, you know, different places. And I mean, I kind of agree with what you guys were saying. It's just pros and cons because if, I mean, I've set up live events and I know Phil's had this and you guys have had this too, where, you know, one of them, we had one, two people from Norway fly in for just two days. We had a person fly in from Croatia and then I had someone who was 40 minutes away that said, no, it's just too hard to get across town in traffic to make it there. <laughs> you know, why Why didn't you record this? Why isn't this online? Um, right. So it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know. I go both ways. Like, I love some of the, the online ability to get some content now, pretty high quality that you were not able to get uh, before. Uh, without having to to leave, you can kind of consume it whenever you want. Um, I do agree that the there isn't the social interaction because uh, going to conferences like the information I always think is is good, but for me it's just you know the ability to see other people, you know obviously friends that I know in the industry to check in with them, see what's going on, and just kind of all the different side conversations you you get into I think are just as beneficial. And the last thing too for for trainers listening, I think sometimes it's easy to undervalue the I hate the word networking, but just connections you naturally will make with people. Um, even just the other day, I got a guy who called me up who wants me to do something for a professional team, and I hung out with him for it's probably three days at a an overnight uh, conference retreat. About two years ago, and I haven't talked to him a whole lot, but we had, you know, good conversations, good interactions then. And when an opportunity came up, he's like, Oh, hey, I thought of me. Um, but I don't think that would have happened if we wouldn't have had that in person, you know, interaction kind of just standard human connection either. So I think a lot of those will, doesn't show up on your ROI sheet maybe that year or maybe in the next three to four years. But I think long term is, is definitely beneficial. Yeah, the networking stuff in the hallway conversations, that's always going to be hard to do. Even when I do online classes, peer-to-peer interaction, that's a minefield, right? Yeah. Uh, And there are some tricks I've learned over the years, but, yeah, it can be be tough. Let's check in with the the (laughs) salty old strength coach. Mm. Phil, I know that... I mean, obviously, you fly all over. You know all the kind of top people that do a lot of this live stuff. Have you been exposed to much of the virtual stuff? Uh, not a ton, just because of what I'm asked to do. So usually when I'm, I'm usually it's always in person because there's a lot of uh, the, the hands-on aspect is huge with what I'm asked to do, with, with what I'm asked to present. It's usually teaching moves and things like that, refining form, which is, I mean, you can kind of do it virtually, like we can. We can show an example, but it's hard to fix somebody's specific problem. Sometimes it's hard for a person to fix their own problem, you know, via just watching somebody else do it. Like a video. Whereas, yeah, whereas if I'm there hands-on, I can, like, yeah, I mean, it's hard to see yourself and how you're moving wrong. So if you got somebody else adjusting you in person, so no, I haven't done a ton of ton of the virtual stuff. So it's just yeah. hands-on is still where it's at. And like you said, there's something to be said about two things, showing up to something, you know, physically getting your butt there and and being part of something, and then the uh, the hands on, uh, just interaction with person to person. So, yeah, I've really come to appreciate the differences. I, once I applied, God, many years ago for a, a federal government job, and 
they were all about this whole document, this whole application was KSA, right? KSA, knowledge, skill, ability. Mm-hmm. And I think we re- it's valuable to separate whether you're teaching a college class, you're doing a virtual conference kind of thing. What are you after there? You know, what's the, what's the learning outcome? And for you, a lot of times it's more workshop. It's skill mm-hmm. acquisition, you know, yeah. as opposed to, to it is. knowledge. Because we'll have some, mm-hmm. like I could, I could totally do one on programming. Now, that'd be one that would fly. Because you, know, you you could sit there and talk programming virtually for a couple hours, you know, easily and and entertain questions and things like that. But usually, that's usually a small part, or maybe one day when I'm presenting is programming. The other day is 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 form and skill acquisition. So, right, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's naturally engaging. So many people these days, I hear students say all the time, "I learn better hands on." You know, like yeah. learning by doing. And but I also think there's a time to. Have the discipline, like you said, to drive across town, sit down, shut up, and listen yeah. for a while. Yeah, yeah. Focus for a while. Well, you and know. you can get people more engaged. It's easier to get people engaged when you're in person. You know, you can get them having a good time, get them laughing, and that's one of the things I've found in presenting is right away if you can get people just smiling, you've got them. Yeah. You know, and that's a lot yeah. of in person. So, yeah. Uh, let's let's come back around to Nick. Um, this is really hard because, I mean, we kind of just went through this idea that it's a little bit different. Is it knowledge acquisition? Is it skill building? You know, like literally hands on the barbell kind of thing. But what kind of pricing are you familiar with, Nick? I mean, you're, you know, you're the businessman here, too. Um, is the pricing equivalent? Is it different? What are we talking about? Again, we've got listeners who may have never done this and they might think, well, the virtual stuff should be very cheap, you know, or the... Maybe it should be more. Um, what's your perspective on pricing of online versus in person? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, you know, the answer is always going to be like it depends. You know, in theory, yeah, okay. So you guys are just doing something virtual, so it's just a bunch of dudes in the house with video cameras. Like, no, <laughs> I mean, we had to go through. Um, I know. I mean, Lonnie, you're presenting with the NSCA, and Mike, you guys saw the green screen room we have set up. Yeah. yeah. Production, post production, reviews. Um, so, you know, the, the costs are cheaper, I think, for virtual, depending on the size that you would do with a live event. The risk is a little bit lower in terms of, you know, what you're outlaying up front. Um, but in terms of cost, it really depends. It's it's what you're paying a presenter. It's everything else. You know, you have to look at your balance sheet and then what type of quality you're bringing in, what you're doing. Um, with the NSCA, we kept the pricing the same as the live events, um, just because the pricing was about the same. the The benefit for the people that attend um, would be, you know, so there's no travel costs. You know, especially for personal trainers that aren't salary based. Yeah, they're not getting con ed money. They're not getting money in travel. If they're out of the gym, they're not making money. So it's kind of set up more convenient for them. So they save a bit more. But, um, you know, it's always it's always a crapshoot. You'll see some uh, virtual events. And when I was doing some research on it, I found a lot that were dirt cheap, like 50 bucks, 100 bucks. But when I got into them, I mean, they were basically advertorials. You know, you're looking at oh. sales pitches. Um that were built to be something different. So it's a it's a tough question. We went at NCA with essentially the same cost for live and virtual because you're getting essentially the same thing. Right, uh, Phil. The now I, I know that there's a obviously there's a celebrity draw sometime. You know, mm-hmm. if you get some 
world-class powerlifter uh, doing the hands-on stuff or uh, mm-hmm. but what what would listeners expect to pay in person is it a couple of hundred bucks because you, you would think you'd devalue it if you just charged like 29.95 for a weekend with phil stevens and i don't jim wendler and 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 you know what i mean yeah what i do is generally it depends on how many people so it depends on how many people we're allowing in like if, uh, one of the ones that we've been doing lately would be a big name, say Windler or Ed Cohn or something like that, but then whittle that thing down to where, okay, there are only 15 people that can come. When you do something like that, that automatically demands that, okay, there's only 15 of them. They're going to get a lot more hands-on personal time. Therefore, that is worth a lot more money. So you've got to look at all that. How many people are you going to allow? What kind of space do you have? Can you allow 100 people in? Okay, well, the price is going to go down because you can get 100 people in there. Um, or there are going to be 10 people that get a lot of, of personal attention. So, and then it depends on the person. Like, I mean, like Cone would probably come here for cheap for me, but I don't like doing that. I want to pay people what they're worth. Yeah. You know, and somebody like that, it's like, I'm going to give you this much. Let's do it. You know? So therefore we're going to demand more money. And some of these guys, especially on the powerlifting side, you get to the old greats like that. I'm going to call it an old great, which I'll probably catch hell from that. <laughs> um, they, they, they don't like asking for money. Yeah. And, but I mean, they should, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so, um, yeah. And that's kind of where the price goes. It just depends on the person who it is, what's presenting. We've done some free stuff on the other hand. Um, like me and another guy did some where it's like, it's cost nothing to come in here and learn from us. And, uh, we use that more as, uh, advertising. I guess you would. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here's our skill set. If you yeah, want to come talk to us, so yeah. But yeah, I mean, somebody like Cone or something like that. I I posted up one, and we were going to charge ten people three hundred bucks. Oh, okay, that's still cheap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I hear it. Uh, Nick, what's is there an industry standard? It, I mean, virtual isn't brand new, right? Are, are, should people expect to spend a couple hundred bucks to to get something worthwhile? Yeah, so when I was doing the background search, there was there's still no standards. And uh, from what I talked to, you know, people have their their philosophies and their experiences, um, but it's still I think a matter of trial and error. It's it's kind of like what Phil mm-hmm. saying. It's what's that right price mix? Um, I, I think you know when you look at I hate to say price and value are the same, but there is a price value equation. You know, if mm-hmm. I'm spending six hundred bucks, like. I sure as heck better be getting, you know, an intimate dinner with Mike Nelson. Um, <laughs> <laughs> versus Done. If I'm, dropping 30 bucks, yeah. if I'm paying 30 bucks for a virtual event, like, you, you better bet you're going to get a couple of key nuggets and then sold something at the end. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think a quality event is going to take money to, be, to get put on. Um, mm-hmm. So I would expect, you know, anywhere between two to 400 is, is kind of the going rate, depending on Okay. What you're looking at. Good yeah. to know. Yeah, I, I didn't want to pin you down too much there, but you know, quantifying this—that's what—that's what our listeners want to know, right? Is this, yeah. is it going to be fifty bucks, or is it going to be three hundred bucks, or is it going to be fifteen hundred bucks? I mean, that that kind of matters, you mm-hmm. know, as far as budgets. So, yeah. Um, one more thing here on, on my list to discuss here is: are these kinds of events? Just for strength coaches, people like Phil that own a facility or, you know, they run a collegiate strength conditioning, um, you know, uh, program. Uh, what could just a, you know, what could a run-of-the-mill 
a competitor, a bodybuilder or powerlifter, or uh, what could they glean from something like this? Is it still going to be worthwhile, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it spans the audience groups, which is nice. So when we have you know a professional training event with the NSCA, like you're not going to get fitness enthusiasts because we're not marketing to them, and content's a little bit deeper. But when you're looking at something like this, like a virtual conference, uh, you know, I mean, your sessions alone, you know, on, on gender differences and protein intake, you know, Mike's talking about CBD, you know, those are really good topics that affect, you know, everything from strength coaches to just the dudes going to the gym and, you know, the CBD stuff doesn't work. Um, so it, it really depends on what people are looking for and where they're at, but I mean, absolutely, it's, it's everything from professional development um, all the way to just, just a fitness enthusiast. It's like, hey, man, I want to know more about this stuff. Right on. You, you know, I, I can't remember who I was having this discussion with lately, but it was the knowledge is power discussion. And the idea, I mean, you go get knowledge, but I think there should be some gold nugget. You know, Mike, you and I, if and Phil, yeah. I mean, you are kind of, orchestrating a lot of this but like when we did stuff for biotest and t nation and stuff a lot of that stuff was we would hear someone like tc or chris shugart say leave gold nuggets there's got to be something they can apply like go try in the gym this week you know mm -hmm. otherwise it's a it's a dry academic lecture you know uh that kind of thing so it, it's often i think you got to go into this if you're going to get the most value out of it if it is for more knowledge and it's not literally skills practice with a bar, you got to think about what am I going to go do this week or this month uh, and test out some of this new knowledge, I think, you know, and actually apply it. Applied knowledge being power kind of thing. So Yeah. Well, I mean, if, I can, if I can piggyback on that. So I think, you know, in, in my eight years at NSCA, one of the – some of the coolest things, or I'd say two of the coolest things that I picked up was, me personally, it's those gold nuggets and it's the – not even knowing what I didn't know. So, you know, I've got a good experience with all this stuff. You know, when we were talking initially, you know, you're talking about caffeine. I'm like, that's cool. I, I take caffeine all the time. And you're like, well, it's different if it comes in the form of coffee. And I was like, holy cow, man. Like, that's something that just, that small nugget could make a big change. But I think the other thing that I think is the funniest is, in my experience working with strength coaches, you know, and they'll go to some of our events, and we have business talks, and they're primarily geared towards personal trainers, but truly really studio owners. I can't tell you how many strength coaches come up like, hey, I, I just kind of popped in there. That talk on schedule management was freaking fantastic, or ROI, and it's like the carryover of, of best practices uh, that you come across. is it's, it's really cool, and it's really enlightening. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Um, Mike, when you work with individual clients, do you, um, and I, of course, yeah, you're doing the online certifications and stuff like that. So clearly you, you value, um, that kind of connectivity. I mean, for God's sake, we're doing a podcast right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, this is not in person, uh, but do you encourage people to go get different, uh, full-blown certifications is a, you know, a seminar, a, a better place to start. Uh, how do you, you know. How do you tier this kind of stuff as far as the, the virtual arena? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of hard. I mean, <clears throat> I had one of my clients I've had for quite a while was just asking me about this the other day, and I'm doing an event in, in St. Louis, and she's like, hey, would this be good for me to go to? And for that particular event, because it's geared to, I'd say, people a little bit 
starting out, I'm like, mm, not really. Uh, but depends on what you're actually trying to do. And I think the harder part is as you get more and more uh, knowledge, it becomes a little bit harder to figure out what direction you want to go. And then you're probably going to have to pay more for a more specialty type program. Um, and then I th- the other part too is I think trainers in general, the industry overall, and I'd be open to your guys' comments on this too, is very much piecemeal. Like we want to pay for this and there's good stuff the NSA does with different topics. And if you're a pretty well-seasoned trainer, I think that's super useful. If you're newer in the industry, I think it's a little bit too easier to kind of skip through all the, the basics and the structure, especially if you don't have an education in it coming in and try to piece all this stuff together. Um, and obviously I'm biased because I work for the, the Kerrigan Institute also, and we do a, a whole year-long master's level human performance program. Um, but that's also very expensive, and it's a massive time commitment. But we're trying to sort of fill that gap of if you don't want to do a full master's program, which may not be, as Nick was saying, directly applicable to what you're doing, is there something else you can do? Uh, the downside is, that, again, it's expensive and it's a big commitment, but I think having some type of program that's more structured or even taking, like we've talked about, Lonnie, the free approach of if you're not very good in exercise phys, just buy a used textbook off of Amazon for 10 bucks and start teaching yourself the basics to make sure that you have a really good solid foundation. And then you can kind of go out and, and pick and choose from other topics. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I th- that's just so key. Like yeah. if you want to understand sports nutrition or, or exercise science, you've got to have some basis. Cause I, I, my biggest critique with this piecemeal world that we live in now is people will go learn something from a YouTube video and it's, it's just personal opinion, right? But yes. they don't have a framework to put that fact. The fact is interesting. They're correct. But you let them, you talk to them for a little while and they start hanging themselves. You're like, oh, that's, that's not how that works. <laughs> you know, that's, they, they need some kind of basis, I would think. But honestly, I probably get in trouble for this at work, but I really think the, um, maybe full on degrees, a lot of them are moving online. I just think the landscape is going to change in a lot of ways, you know, Definitely. where people are, you know, are, they're into MOOCs and uh, in individual like certifications and, and very narrow things. And I don't know. I just think the nature of education is going to, going to change quite a bit. I mean, I, I got to think a lot of Phil's people are, some of them might want a certification for personal enrichment reasons. Uh, some of them don't really, they just want to get a, a better squat. You know, they just want mm-hmm. a personal skill development kind of thing. You know, so uh, there's there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot, I think, in this landscape. But uh, uh, Nick, let's just wind down. So the, the NSCA event is in October. Do you want to share anything? Because I know you're kind of following through with uh, making that happen. Sure thing. So we've got two fantastic experts that are headlining the entire event. One Here we is go. Dr. Lonnie Lowry. Yeah, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Uh, now, so it's um, it's airing Monday through Friday. It's uh, October 7th through 11. Uh, we're kicking it off from 12 to 5 every day, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, so every session is about 30 minutes. So people that attend will watch the session virtually. Then they'll have 15 to 20 minutes of Q&A through a moderator with the presenter. So that's, that's really the key part. Uh, for people that can't attend... 
any or all of it. If they if they sign up for it, they have access to it for a year. Uh, they get NCA CEUs. Most other organizations just have to check with them, but it, they'll accept CEUs for it as well. Uh, it's a variety of topics, everything from nutrition through the cadaver lab to programming and research. Uh, got some great presenters, so it's it's going to be a, a cool event, a good experience, and uh, yeah, check it out. And if people want more information, they can always go to nsca.com and and uh, look at the full list of presenters and details. Right on, cool, awesome. cool stuff. All right, everybody. Well, that's what we got this week. Thanks for coming on, Nick. I do appreciate the expertise. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great catching up with everybody. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll catch up with everybody uh, next week then. See ya. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. uh, Knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.